spend. The best is yet to come. One day. One day. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter number 12. Uh, text this evening is in verse number 2, but we're going to back up and read through verse number 1 that we considered last week. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. As we look around the world today, we all realize that few things are exactly as they ought to be. And we see the need for change everywhere. I'm talking about in every area of life, things need to be different. And someday they will be different, but for now, well, it is what it is. So as we consider the need for change, the one thing that we need to be aware of is that same thing is true in churches, just as it is in politics or anything else. And by the way, it's always been that way. I mean, there's never been a perfect Christian. There's never been a perfect church. And the Bible proves that's true because the epistles were written to provide corrective measures for Christians and especially for churches. As you look at the epistles and notice they're addressed to churches in different locations. And it's quite obvious, for example, the church at Corinth, although Paul said you possess all of the gifts I mean, God had blessed them with the spiritual gifts, but, but yet they were the most carnal church of, of that day. And uh, so he is writing to them for the purpose of correcting things that are wrong. We, we look at the letter of, you know, Titus, Paul to Titus, and he says, I left you in Crete. What for? Well, to set in order those things, you know, that are lacking, the problems there. So there's problems everywhere. The problem is... A lot of folks run from church to church in search of a perfect church, or at least, and I think this is really the thing they're really looking for, the church that pleases them. And that, that, you know, there's so many folks that they're not interested in staying in a church and trying to let God use them to help make it a better church. Uh, you know, they they take off for in their search to find something else, something different. And, and you know what I've noticed? Their search almost never ends. The same people, I, I look around and I see you folks here tonight, I mean, have been, you've been in church for years and years and faithful and uh, you're so dependable to the church. And I, I think back to whenever I first moved here and uh, certain families within Within a few weeks, they left. I suppose because of me, they wouldn't say so. And in fact, some of them said it was other things that, you know, that they didn't didn't like. And so they thought this would be a good time to leave. And I, I said, well, why, have you ever thought about staying and trying to make it better? Uh, no, we don't want to try to make it better. We, we just want to leave. And uh, so uh, what can you do with people like that? Not much. 
we have to learn to live with things such as they are. We really do. We cannot always be changing the other person. Uh, whether that's in your marriage or whether it's in church or wherever it's at. And we need to focus on, on ourselves. And, and while we can't change one another, we can do something about ourselves. We can effect change in our life, and that's what we ought to do. Now, tonight, here in verse number 2, Remember last week he talked about presenting your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord, but this week it has to do with being transformed. Be ye transformed. But notice there is a prohibition before that. He says, and be not conformed to this world. And that's an imperative. It's not an option. It's it's an obligation. Be not conformed to this world And that phrase, be not conformed, means to stop being fashioned by the world. And the word world, the Greek word, is the word that is for age. In other words, the the air that we live in and the spirit of this world. And remember, Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 2, before we were saved, we walked according to the course of this world. And, uh, I mean, that's the way it was by nature before we're saved. We are captivated, as it were, by this evil system in which we live. But for the child of God, we've been delivered from this world. Amen? There's no need for us to remain like the world. And he's calling here for us being transformed into something different. I I like what one writer said. He said, don't let the world cram you into its mold. And, And that's what it's trying to do because there's pressure on every side. You can call it peer pressure or whatever you want, but there's pressure everywhere for us to conform this political correct uh, nonsense that we hear so much about today. That That's all it is, is uh, trying to get us to conform to the ways of this world. And so we need to think about this. Be not conformed to this world. And we need to think about it in regards to every single area of our life. Our actions ought to be different. Our attitude, it ought to be different. Our ambitions ought to be different. We are called to be different. But few people have the conviction and the courage to dare to be a Daniel, as the little song says. So we're to be different. But listen carefully now. We are not to be different just for the sake of being different. That's not what he's talking about. We're to be different because we are like Christ. I remember back, and some of you no doubt do, back in the hippie movement. And so the hippies started wearing these granny dresses, you know, that drugged the ground, and they had their hair in braids, and their hair was out real long, and and all of these things. And you know what I noticed? All of a sudden, all of a sudden, that became popular in the Christian culture. And I thought, this is so strange. I could preach my guts out about dressing modestly before the the hippie movement, you know, and nobody, nobody would listen to what I say. And a bunch of hippies come along, and they decide to revolt, as it were, against society, and they're going to dress just the opposite. And somebody looks at that and says, boy, that's really good, you know, at least they're finally getting modest and so on and so forth. But look, motive matters to God. 
And so just trying to be different by not using makeup, letting your dress drag the ground or whatever it is that you do that you think makes you holy, sometimes it can make you look like a fool. Because God's not telling you, I just want you to be different. He's telling us He wants us to be like Christ. That's the standard, that's the pattern that we're to go by. So He says, be not conformed to this world. Don't let the world cram you into its mold. Now, if we're going to be effective witnesses for Christ, it is essential that we, that we maintain our difference from this world. In, in recent years, I'd say the last ten years, there's been a lot of surveys taken, the Gallup poll, and, uh, and just a lot of different ones, Christian organizations, taking these surveys and asking questions, uh, both of the non-Christian segment of society and of professing Christians. And what do you believe about this and what do you do? And whether we want to face the music or not, the fact is there is almost zero difference in what non-Christians and professing Christians in America believe today and the way they behave today. I mean, just about the same. Do you cheat on exams? Just about the same number. There's no difference. When we lose our difference, we lose our testimony. We lose our effectiveness. And what the problem is, We've got too many, we've got too many thermometer Christians. That is that you are influenced by the culture around you and we need some thermostat Christians that determine what the culture is around us, you see. We're to be what? Salt and light, isn't that right? So we're to have an effect on the world around us, where you work where you go to school, where you live, in your neighborhood, every place you are, you are to have an effect on others. And if you conform your ways to their ways, you don't have any witness whatsoever. So he says, notice, there's the prohibition, do not be conformed to this world, this age, this wicked, evil age. Remember that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. In other words, he's called the God of this world. And that's what we are to avoid being conformed to. But then notice the positive side. But but be ye transformed. Now, you know, it's one thing to say, well, I'm not going to be conformed to this world. I'm going to be different. And like I said, you, you decide that you're going to dress differently. You're going to talk differently. And so, okay, you're different. But listen, that doesn't make you better. You can be different without being any better unless, unless there is this transformation that he's talking about here. And that word ought to, ought to get our attention, be transformed, because as long as we are in these earthly bodies, there's going to be a need for change, because absolutely none of us measure up to the stature of Christ. He is a standard that is so high that you and I can never in this life become what he is. But we ought to be making progress. We ought to be growing more and more and more into his likeness. And, and I think so many times one of, the, one of the, the reasons that we get in a rut, a spiritual rut in churches, it's not that we assume that we're perfect, 
But we just don't see the need for change. And I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. We just don't see the need for things to be any better or any different in our life. After all, you know, we're regular in our church attendance. We read our Bible. We pray. We tithe. We do all of those things. What is there to improve on? That's when you need to look to Christ and look at Him and consider Him and think about Him and His standard because, look, He's the one that we're all measured by. The Bible says that all sin comes short of the glory of God. You still come short of the glory of God. I mean, you may be forgiven and on your way to heaven, but you still come short of the glory of God. You don't measure up. I don't measure up. There's always room for improvement. There's always a need for transformation. This word transformation comes from a Greek word, the meta, uh, 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 metamorphosis. It, it's what, you know, what we describe a, uh, a worm becoming a beautiful butterfly. Uh, it talks about an inward change, a change on the inside that issues forth into an outward change. But it, it's something that, that we are transformed from what we were, you know, to what we Ought to be. The same word where it talks about Christ being transfigured over in the book of Matthew, the same word is translated transfigured there, speaking of that very thing, a transformation in our life. And so it's obvious that He wants us to be different. Now the question is, how can we be different with all of our imperfections, all of our weaknesses, with all of our enemies? With, you know, all of our weaknesses, how is it that we can ever be different? How can we possibly measure up to a standard that's pleasing to God? Well, I'm glad you asked because the Lord knew you were going to ask that question. Notice this, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. You say your mind affects your manners. What you think up here affects the way that you behave by the renewing of your mind. Now, before a person's mind is renewed, there's three things we have to consider. First of all, he has to realize his shortcomings. You can't help an alcoholic until he admits he's an alcoholic. I don't care what you do. You can go out and bail him out of jail. You can clean him up. You can give him a new suit of clothes. Uh, you can do everything in the world to help that person, but it's all to no avail till they are broken, till they get to that point they realize, I am an alcoholic. And by the way, we cannot be helped, we cannot be changed, transformed, until we see the need for that transformation in our life. We've got to realize the need, but then the mind has to be renewed because it's not enough just to realize the need. Oh, yeah, you know, I'm a drunk or I'm a, I'm, I'm a dope addict or I'm addicted to pornography or whatever it is. It's not enough just to admit that this is what my problem is. The mind has to be renewed. And notice, as I said, this word metamorphosis it has to do with something on the inside, a change issuing from within. That's important because that's where the change has to, has to begin. It can't be just an outward reformation. It has to be an inward transformation that affects the outward life. The battlefield is our mind. 
That's where the battle's taking place. The, the, the Bible says, as man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And if you'll look over in 2 Corinthians chapter number 10 for just a moment, I want you to notice what Paul says here in verse number 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. Now listen and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So this is where the battle is taking place. Our weapons are described, of course, over in in uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Actually, our armor is described there, and our weapon, which is the Word of God. I mean, we are helpless without God's Word if our mind is going to be renewed. And here's the main reason that's true. We have to recognize our shortcoming, renew our mind, but the only way that can be done is by having our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, by reflecting on Him, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That is as clear as the nose on your face that we all with an unveiled face, as it were, beholding the glory of the Lord, and that's in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we are focused on Him. Now notice it's not talking about you and I changing. It's talking about being changed. Because you're not the change agent. You make some choices, but the change agent is the Holy Spirit. And that's why he says, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are changed, notice, from glory into glory. And as I've often said, you can just go on from glory to glory to glory to glory until we get to glory. That's the way it ought to be. That's the way it ought to work. But it doesn't work that way unless our attention is focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's the key to the whole thing. And no way in the world do we have our attention focused on Christ if we are negligent of the Word of God, because it's the Word of God that gives us the guidance we need in this battle. Amen? I mean, it is like the roadmap for our our life. It's the light for our path. It's exactly what we need, regardless of what the need is. And whenever whenever Solomon said, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are all of the issues of life, we're able to keep that is to protect and to guard our heart only by looking to the Word of God. And notice he said, There in 2 Corinthians, bringing into captivity every thought, every thought, think about that, to the obedience of Christ. So we have an obligation to control what we're thinking in our mind. And the only way we can effectively do that is by keeping our focus 
on the Lord Jesus Christ, looking unto Jesus. Remember what he said to the Philippians, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ. Think about that. There's so many times that our thought pattern is totally contrary to the Lord. And that's why our life ends up being far different than what the Lord's is. So we see the pathway to transformation by recognizing our need and renewing our mind by keeping our focus on Christ. And when that happens... God begins to do a work in our heart, and all of a sudden, that temper that we couldn't control, all of a sudden, it's under control. Not your control, it's now under control of the Holy Spirit. That covetous spirit that you have, all of a sudden, it begins to melt away, and you've got a peace and a satisfaction that you never had before. That bitter spirit that you had before, all of a sudden, it just melts away, and the Spirit of God puts love in your heart toward other people. And the list goes on and on and on. We are changed as we focus on Christ. And you mark it down. If you're, listen to me, I think this is the best definition I know of being a backslider. If you are not growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're backslidden. When you stop growing, you're backslidden. You, you, you might do more than anybody in the church, give more than anybody in the church, know more than anybody in the church, but if you're not growing, you're backslidden. In other words, your life has come to a standstill, you're now in a rut, and you need to see the need, the need of being transformed and going on from glory to glory to glory. Now, notice the possibilities The possibility is, he says, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That word prove means to test or to approve. It means to actually to learn from experience. One of the very first books I read whenever I first became a Christian, I read the the biography of Charles Spurgeon and and the other one that I have to this very day, D.L. Moody. And going through D.L. Moody's Bible, someone was looking at it, and they noticed in the margin, they kept seeing T and P, T and P, T and P. And somebody asked him, what does that mean? Why, why have you written that in the margin of your Bible? He said, tried and proven. Tried and proven. Look, that's what Paul is saying here, that you might prove that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Look at those three words. First of all, good. That means the will of God is excellent in its character. It's beneficial in its effect. And that's why holiness produces happiness. There's so many people who got the idea, well, you know, if I, live, if I try to live a holy life, you know, and if I give up this and I give up that, I'm going to be miserable. No, you're not. If you're a child of God, if you're a child of God, you're going, you're going to be happy. I mean, you're going to be joyful. You're going to be thrilled. Why? Because the will of God's good. It's never bad. It's beneficial. It's good for you. You know, it's amazing that we, you know, tell little children, eat your veggies now. They're good for you. Well, I'll tell you, we as Christians need to do the will of God because it's good and it's good for you. But notice he doesn't end there. 
the will of God, he says, is good. But then he goes on and he says it is acceptable. That means that it's pleasing, desirable, proper, or agreeable. That acceptable will of God. Now, here's the wonderful thing. It is acceptable in the sense that it is pleasing to us as a Christian. We talked about that a bit this morning whenever Spurgeon, you know, made that statement concerning the will of God that that he is not in chains, you know, as a result of doing God's will, that we are never more free than when we're in the will of God, you see. And it's not a, it's not a burden. In fact, the, the Bible tells us that the commandments of the Lord are not grievous, not to those that know the Lord. And so when we talk about it being acceptable, that simply means that, that it's going to be well-pleasing to us. We'll be all the more pleased as a result of it. And that's very evident from the book of Ecclesiastes, right? I mean, that nothing could be clearer than that because here's old Solomon conducting all of these experiments, trying everything under the sun. And uh, whenever he just wrapped it all up in one big ball of wax and looked at it, he said, it's all vanity. It's a soap bubble. It's nothing. It, there's no value in it. And he said, in fact, he said, I hated life. But whenever you get over there to the last chapter and you see that he said, you know, this is the whole duty of God, fear God and keep his commandments. I mean, he finally realized that the only way in this life that he could be satisfied, that is pleased, was by doing the will of God. So the will of God's good. It's never bad. And it's pleasing. It, listen, it's pleasing to you, but more importantly, it's pleasing to God. He is pleased. You see, God, you can't improve on it. When, when you're doing the will of God, whatever it is, you can't improve on it. If that's what God wants you to do, that's the only thing you need to do. So we do the will of God, and we need to do no more than the will of God. Now, let that sink in. You are not obligated to do more than the will of God. You know, there are people in nursing homes, for example... People that love the Lord, people that would love to be able to get out and to go and to do the things that you and I have an opportunity to do, but they can't. I'm glad that faithfulness requires us just doing what we can. Faithfulness demands different things from different people. Now listen, whenever we think about those people in nursing homes, we can relate to that and we can see their situation and we can understand it and consequently, you know, we can agree with them that, well, uh, you know, it's obvious you love the Lord and uh, you're, you're in a situation that you can't do anything about. You're physically handicapped or whatever. And so there are limitations on what you can do for God. And we understand that. We don't expect you to do more than that. But I'm telling you, folks, there are people in the church, some of them nearly every week, nearly every service, that due to certain things in their life, there are limitations on what they can do and limitations on what God expects them to do. And just because you can be here every service doesn't mean they can be here every service. Just because you can give a certain amount of money doesn't mean that they ought to be able to give that amount of money. Just because you do certain things doesn't mean that they have to do those things. We're all different. And not only are we different, but we have different circumstances 
And, and usually these, these are the kind of people that are not going to get up and just spill their guts and tell you about all of their problems and explain, you know, why they can't be here. As a young preacher, I had a terrible habit of being so judgmental of other people in that regards. I just figured in my mind, I mean, if you could crawl, you ought to, you ought to be in every church service. I mean, it didn't make no difference. You ought to get there any way you could, regardless of how you felt, regardless of what the circumstances were. And Bev knew that. I didn't have to tell Bev, you know, if you got a migraine headache, you know, uh, you know, you better come to church anyway. I didn't have to tell her that. She could tell she lived with me. She knew how I was. And so she she drug herself off to church. It didn't make any difference how she felt or what was going on. And uh, a few years ago, I began to realize, you see, it's like the old Indian saying, don't judge a person until you walk a mile in their moccasins. And there are a lot of times the only way we ever learn our lesson is for God to give us the problem somebody else has got, and then we learn to be more sympathetic. And Beth can tell you now, I do not judge her one second. If she says, I don't feel, I just can't get up, I can't go tonight, she doesn't have to explain any further than that. I'm not God, number one. She doesn't have to explain that to me. That's between her and God. She doesn't owe me an explanation in that regards. And it's true not only of her, but I've come to be able to understand that people in the congregation, they cannot do everything we expect them to do. One of the things that, I, that, I, that has helped me so much to realize, because as a young preacher, I thought not only should everybody else do everything I told them to do, I thought I ought to be setting the example and that I ought to do everything. I've laid cinder block and uh, such as it was, you know, I'm not a block layer. I've put uh, roofing on a church. I'm I'm not a roofer. So, you know, and and so I I thought I needed to be there and to do everything. And, And slowly over the years, I began to realize, no, no, wait a minute, I don't have to do everything to be in the will of God. If you, listen, if you'll pay attention to me tonight, this is something that will help every single one of us. Doing the will of God is acceptable to God, and you don't have to do any more than that. My fear always as a pastor was what are the people going to think? Because it concerns me. I've heard people say, I don't care what people think. Well, you ought to. You ought to. You ought to be ashamed of yourself to not care what people think. It matters what people think. But, but, that being said, we cannot let what people think dictate what we do. God expects me to do His will and no more. I don't have to do anything else other than the will of God. And I don't know anybody an explanation for that. And I'm so glad that I'm a pastor of a church that evidently understands that because just like the concert yesterday, and Bev and I was talking about this earlier, we got ready to come over here, you know, an hour or so early to to, to do the, the... Well, that's another story. Uh, I don't want to go there because I goofed up. But uh, we were talking, you know, and said it is so amazing because 
you know, years ago, every time, if we had a Bible conference, vacation Bible school, it didn't make any difference what it was. You know, we had to organize the whole thing, ramrod the whole thing, make sure, make sure it all got done. And now all I need is just somebody to tell me what's going on and I'll be there. I mean, that's exaggerating, you know. People say, you know, we're going to, we want to do this or that. And yeah, sure, I approve. That sounds like a good deal. Let's do it. And they do it. Now, you know, if, if you want to get mad at me because I'm not out there driving tent pegs in the ground or something like that, you go ahead, go ahead. I don't have to answer to you about that. I, I mean, I know what God wants me to do at this stage of my life, especially. I know what my limitations are and what I can do and what God wants me to do. That's all I've got to do. And the same thing's true of you. Don't you let your husband back you in a corner. And and, and don't misunderstand. I'm not talking about having a rebellious spirit. But I'm talking about people putting their expectations on you when those expectations are keeping you, hindering you from doing God's will. That's all God expects. God's will is good. God's will is acceptable. But notice the third thing he says. That good and acceptable and perfect, that means that it is brought to completeness. There's nothing lacking, and that's basically what I've been talking about. Nothing else is needed. I don't have to do anything else. It's the perfect, complete will of God. So, think about it. In doing the will of God, what... It brings righteousness. Notice he says it's good. Righteousness is doing right, correct? And that's what it means. So if I'm going to live a righteous life, well, I've got to do the will of God. It's good. But notice, it ought to bring a rejoicing. Why? Because it's acceptable. It's pleasing to God. It ought to be pleasing to us. And then notice he says it's perfect. That means that's a relief. That I don't have to do any more than that. And I love what one person said. I don't know where I saw this. He's talking about the will of God, and he put it like this. He said, the will of God, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, nothing better. Boy, that's a sermon in a little over a second. The will of God, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, and there's nothing better. You know, if we understood the will of God, we wouldn't be fearful of God's will for our life. I often say God's will is the safest place on earth. It's like old Dr. George Truett used to say, God's will's right. It's always right. It's not just right. God's will's always best. It's not just best. It's safest. The safest place on this earth is to be in the center of God's will. And the most dangerous place for you and I is outside the will of God. Be ye transformed. Don't let the world conform you, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to realize the need... You have to get your focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and allow the Spirit of God to do His work in renewing your mind the way that you think. And all of a sudden, things begin to change and you prove that it is tested. You see, some folks have never, they've never put God's will to the test, as it were. It's never been proven to them. 
You remember when he was talking about tithing in the book of Malachi? What, what did he say? Prove, prove me herewith. Amen? I mean, try me. Put, it's kind of like God saying, put me on trial. Check it out. Do it and see if it doesn't work. And I'm telling you, it works. There's nothing in the world more wonderful than putting your head on the pillow at night knowing, knowing that you've done God's will for the day. Will other people appreciate that or understand it? No, they're not. Bev can tell you preacher's wives, and no preacher's wife can fully understand the mindset of a preacher. But she can tell you from all of these years that there are times that, you know, you can't just question everything a preacher does because, you know, sometimes you have to lock yourself in a room, as it were. And, and I'm sure that to the outside world, it's like, why you got to study so much or something? Well, you, you, you just don't understand what's going on in the mind of a preacher. And like Charles Spurgeon used to say, the most difficult thing about preaching is deciding what to preach. Because after you decide what to preach, it's, you know, fairly easy to just to get into the Word and study the Word and prepare yourself and, and to deliver the message. But I'll tell you, there's a battle that goes on every single, every single service. Every single message is born out of a battle because you mark it down that if God lays a message on my heart, it's because somebody needs it. And Satan's going to do everything he can to confuse the issue so as to muddy the water and uh, to keep people from being transformed. Look, the devil doesn't care if you get excited. We can get excited and dance on the, on the ceiling, as it were. Uh, dance up and down the halls. Uh, he doesn't care. Look, Satan really doesn't care if you are absolutely orthodox, that is to be absolutely correct in your doctrine of the Bible. That is, you cross every T and you dot every I and you've got it all down and you can rehearse it and you can quote it and you can debate it. He doesn't care about that. You know what he cares about? The thing that scares the devil to death, as it were, is when we put into practice God's will for our life. Because when we do His will, and our attitude ought to be just like the Lord Jesus Christ. Not my will, but thine be done. And that ought to be our attitude as we leave here tonight. Because there's nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. And there's nothing better than to be in the will of God. Let's all stand together. Father, we pray tonight that you might be glorified in each and everything that we do throughout the course of this week. Every conversation that we have every deed that we do, every thought that we think. I just pray that you'll help us to represent you well in the, in the world around us, and we'll be the salt and the light that they need. Help us, Heavenly Father, to, to be your instruments to bring about change in the lives of others. But help us mainly, first of all, that we might continually be transformed from glory unto glory, that day by day that we'll grow more and more and more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the little chorus says, to be like Jesus, dear God, may that be our prayer tonight, to be like Him in all things, for we beg it in His name. Amen.